I think people would be shocked to find out how many generals in the Union Army were comrades of Karl Marx, right? And communist, like literal communists. So yeah, <laughs> you'd be shocked. There were there were more communist meetings in the Union Army than you would ever think. So <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's 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 a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Again, so now, not part of how they teach it to us. <laughs> no. Probably not put that in the podcast. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> I needed myself and everything. Hi there. My name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Nearly 70 Ypsilanti men served in the Civil War's Black regiments, including many who previously escaped from slavery. A dozen never returned. Whether with Michigan's 102nd United States Colored Troops or the Glory Regiments of the 54th and 55th Massachusetts Infantries, Ypsilanti men were largely stationed on the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina. There, they were at some of the war's most iconic moments, like the assault on Fort Wagner, the liberation of Charleston, and Sherman's march to the sea. In this episode, we will learn from historian Matt Siegfried about who the Ypsilanti volunteers were, their life in camp, the racism they faced in the military, the battles they fought, the plantations they liberated, and the lives lived in Ypsilanti after the war as we take a look at Ypsilanti's Black Civil War experience. Matt Siegfried is a historian, writer, and researcher based in Ypsilanti. A graduate of Eastern Michigan University with degrees in history and historic preservation, much of his work has been focused on connecting local history to broad historical moments and trends, with a focus on how race, class, gender, and power impact our social landscape. He has given many presentations at the Ypsilanti District Library and is a historian and cultural landscapes expert at the Southeast Michigan Stewardship Coalition, where he works with teachers to integrate place-based learning into curricula. When people think of the Civil War, they may think of battles happening in places like Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, Missouri, Kentucky, and Tennessee. All these states were close to the border between the North and the South. 
Michigan feels pretty far from that. But today, you're going to educate us about Ypsilanti's Black Civil War experience and the role Ypsilanti played in the American Civil War. What was Ypsilanti like in the time before the Civil War? Well, Ypsilanti was a small town. It had about five or 6,000 people, a little less at that point. It grew quite a bit during the Civil War. It had a small Black population that had grown pretty dramatically in about the decade before the Civil War, after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. And that Black population would come to determine lots of Ypsilanti's politics and housing and everything. But Ypsilanti in the mid-1860s was a relatively small city. At the same time, it was about the same size as Ann Arbor. For a Michigan city, it was pretty large. It was mainly settled by people from upstate New York, Vermont, those kinds of places. So the people who settled Ypsilanti came from parts of what became the United States that had the least sort of penetration and impact of human slavery, upstate New York, those kind of places. It didn't mean there wasn't slavery there. It just means that it was much less important part of the economy than it was down south. The people who came here came largely from non-slave owning societies. And I think that's important. So even if they're not sympathetic with the struggle against slavery, they come from a culture that didn't really abide by it. And I think that's important to remember for most people in Ypsilanti, not all. There are so many reasons why Ypsilantians, and especially Black Ypsilantians, would or wouldn't sign up to fight for the Union. What are some of those factors? For Black folks, the factors are very different than for white folks, although there's some similar, of course. For Black men, of course, you're not a citizen of the United States. Citizenship rights didn't come until they were won during the Civil War. So you're asking to fight for a country that you're not a citizen of and don't have rights for. Black people also couldn't become officers of their regiments. You were confined to sort of sergeant and below. So it meant that even if you were the leading Black man in Ypsilanti, you would have to take orders from some, (laughs) you know, a young white guy. So that was really hard for people. Also, the racism in the army and of the leadership of the army meant that Black soldiers were relegated to non-combat duty, to making fortifications, to manning forts and all of that kind of stuff, and, and rarely being able to go out to the field and fight until later in the war. Also, there was disparity in pay. White soldiers were paid $13 a month and Black soldiers were paid $10 a month. Eventually, Black soldiers, including soldiers from Ypsilanti, protested that, refused their pay, and were able to win through the course of the Civil War equal pay to white soldiers and back pay for all of the pay that they had missed. The Civil War was a dramatic, dramatic change. And one of the ways you can see that change is that Black men were able to get, in the process of the war, equal pay with white soldiers. It took a while, but they were able to do it. Was there much public debate among Black Michiganians about this? What can you tell me about the Michigan Colored Men's Convention of 1863? In 1863, January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. And we think a lot of different things about the Emancipation Proclamation. And of course, it's true that the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't free anybody. It's a proclamation. But what it does do is change the character of the war to being one where slavery is now at the center of what the war is about. Other very important thing that happens in the Emancipation Proclamation is it allows for the recruitment of Black soldiers into the Union Army. So that also will change the character of the war. 
about 200,000 black troops will end up fighting for the Union Army. It's actually inconceivable that the Union Army would have won militarily the war without the aid of both black men and women who served the Union Army in the fields. The debate with the Emancipation Proclamation was, why would we want to fight for a country that did not view us as equal citizens? And so in January 1863, leading black Michiganders, men, and some national figures like Martin Delaney and William Whipper met here in Ypsilanti to discuss how to respond to the Emancipation Proclamation. And they put out a resolution that demanded that the state of Michigan remove the word white from its constitution before black men in Ypsilanti would sign up to fight for Michigan. Now, that didn't happen, <laughs> uh, but you can, you can see that Black Ypsilantians are not just following along. They're making their own demands, even though they don't have the vote, they don't have citizenship rights. They're making their demands on how this war will operate before they're willing to participate fully in it. I think that's really important. Black people are changing the course of the war by their actions and by their demands. People enslaved are running away from slavery. Whatever the Emancipation Proclamation says or doesn't say, Black people with their own feet are voting to free themselves in a way that never happened before the war. All of this comes up. And in 1863, the character of the war does change. It's no longer a war to preserve the Union. It becomes a war to destroy slavery. Maybe they didn't set it out to be that way, but that's sure the way it became. And in large part, you can thank African-Americans for forcing the issue to make it a war against slavery. And we don't want to take anything away from what they were able to accomplish in that war. They forced the United States to wage war against slavery. That was a big accomplishment. Once recruitment of Black soldiers commenced in the North, what did that look like? What kind of men joined? Who joined? Was there any counter-response to it? What can you tell me about the Detroit Rice Riots of March 1863? There were lots of responses to the recruitment of Black soldiers. It also corresponds with, not directly, but indirectly with the institution of the draft as well. For the first couple of years, the Union Army was an all-volunteer army. It did not rely on the draft at all. And as the war dragged on and casualties mounted, the draft seemed to be necessary. So at the same time that you have Black men beginning to get rights and beginning to be mobilized, you get also white men being forced into the army in the North. So there were, were on the part of some whites, bitter resentment, bitter resentment. It was around the draft, but it was also around some war weariness. Now you're three years into the war with no end in sight, but it was also racism. People may have heard of the New York City draft riots. There were race riots and riots against the draft that targeted black people all over the country. And in March 1863, Detroit was the scene of violent riots by many, but not all, German and Irish immigrants in Detroit attacking the traditional Black neighborhoods just to the east of what is now downtown Detroit. Black people were burned out of their homes. Black people were killed in that process. The Ypsilanti National Guard was mobilized and sent to Detroit to help put down the riots in Detroit. So Ypsilanti played a role in that as well. I believe it was the 27th Michigan was bivouacked here in Ypsilanti and was brought into Detroit to put down the riots. There were a number of responses like that. 
Detroit is where Black Michiganders recruited into the Union forces would have gone to Camp Ward, kind of near where Elmwood Cemetery is right now, at the outskirts of town. Conditions were terrible. Black men who were recruits were given the worst weapons, were given the worst food, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so you see a lot of desertions among Black recruits in Detroit, because this is not what they signed up for, right? And in fact, you won't see any desertions from the 102nd United States Colored Troop once it gets into the field, because people want to be in the field and fight. But when they're in Detroit facing racism, a lot of young Black men quit. Of course they do, because this is not what they signed up for. Who are the kind of men joining the Union Army? Michigan is slow to recruit. Federal policy changes in January 1863, but Michigan won't start recruiting until October of 1863, really start recruiting into the 102nd United States Colored Troops. That means that there's already recruiting going on in the North. So many Michigan men who are eager to fight will go to those states that began recruiting first, and that's Massachusetts. So if people have ever heard of the Glory Regiment, seen the movie Glory with Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, and Matthew Broderick, it's about the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. And many Ypsilantians would go to Massachusetts and join both the 54th and 55th Massachusetts Infantries because they were the very first to organize in the North. They weren't the first Black troops, but they were the first to organize in the North. And generally, young men go. But what we see with black soldiers, which is a little different than white soldiers, we see the average age is a little bit older and more men with families join than white soldiers. One way to think about that is a broader swathe of the population among black people are joining the Union Army than among white people. In Ypsilanti, that means about 25% of the available, meaning soldier age white men, will join and fight in the Union Army, and about 75% of soldier age black men will join and fight in the Union Army. When we watch movies about the Civil War or learn about the Civil War, it seems like a white man's war, and it really wasn't. Every single black family in Ypsilanti would have participated in that war, whether their father, their son, their cousin, their uncle. One way or another, they would have participated in that war. And that's important to know. That's true for all Northern Black communities. That's true for all Northern Black communities. And you can imagine why. The Civil War is a life or death struggle against slavery. You want to participate in it. And there's quite a bit of peer pressure to participate in it. So what you see at the end of the war, when it's clear that the Union is winning and the war is coming to an end, you see a lot of older Black men rushing to join because they want to say, I was, I did it. I was part of it. I was part of it. What were some early battles in which Black Ypsilantians would fight? What units would they fight under? Did Michigan itself have units for Black Ypsilantians to join? Were they segregated units or integrated units? The Union Army is segregated. There are specific Black units and specific white units. All the Black units would have been officered by white men. They are segregated, but they would have to have white officers. Now, Those white officers could be very different depending on the unit. So those white officers could be just racist careerists who can move up the ranks very quickly by joining what's called the colored troops, the colored units. And the other cases, there's real abolitionists who want to join a black unit because that's what they want the Civil War for. So you get a real differentiation between those units that are abolitionist-minded in terms of their officers who lead classes, who are really socially minded. And then you have some units like 
frankly, the Michigan unit, the 102nd, which is led largely by career officers, racists, things like that. The 54th and 55th Massachusetts that Michiganders joined would have been led by white radical abolitionists, including men who would have fought with John Brown. They would have seen their part in this war as helping to facilitate Black people's self-emancipation, some of them. They played an important role in that, these abolitionist officers, and they would die alongside the Black men that served under them in these battles. The battle that we're going to speak of right now is Fort Wagner, which is the most iconic moment for Black soldiers in the entire Civil War. It happened in July 1863 off the coast of South Carolina. And that's where the 54th Massachusetts demanded to play a leading role in what was a suicidal assault on an impregnable Confederate position to prove to the country, to prove to the army, to prove to the government that Black soldiers would fight and die. The men of the 54th Massachusetts, both the white officers and the Black soldiers, demanded to make a blood sacrifice, to make a blood sacrifice. And they did do that. And in their assault on Fort Wagner, one third of the 54th Massachusetts was cut down, including two Ypsilanti men were killed in the assault, John Leatherman and Charles Augustus. Charles Augustus left a young widow and an orphan here in Ypsilanti. His daughter never would have seen her father. He would have gone off to war before she was born and then died before ever seeing her. Ypsilantians were at the most iconic battle for all Black troops in the Civil War. In fact, there's a very famous painting of the 54th Massachusetts assault on Fort Wagner, and it hung over the desk of Frederick Douglass, and it still hangs over the desk of Frederick Douglass. It was that iconic. His own sons fought in Fort Wagner. To participate in Fort Wagner was to participate in the most iconic moment for all Black people in the Civil War. And out of the 1,000 or so Black men who did participate in that from the whole country, about a dozen were from Ypsilanti. About a dozen were from Ypsilanti. So Ypsilanti was there. Ypsilanti was there. Where did Black Ypsilantians camp before departing to areas of conflict? What were the conditions like there? What was the actual deployment like? Here in Michigan, Black troops are organized at Camp Ward in Detroit, which was on the east side of Detroit. Now it's sort of the center of Detroit, but near Elmwood Cemetery. There's a high school there where the old camp was. From there, the 102nd United States Colored Troops went by train to Annapolis, Maryland. That would have been in April of 1864. Grant had just taken over all of the Union armies and actually would have observed the 102nd United States Colored Troops in Annapolis. In Annapolis, they boarded ships and went to the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina. So many people would probably have heard of Hilton Head, which we think of as a very famous beach resort off the coast of South Carolina. And it was a big, large plantation island at that point. And all the islands off the coast of South Carolina into Georgia were called the Sea Islands. People may have heard of the Gullah language. It's even physically, geographically, the closest part of the United States to Africa. And socially, it was as well. Because of the kind of crops they were growing on the Sea Islands, indigo and rice, the plantation owners wanted a very specific skill set and went to specific places in Africa to get that skill set. And that meant that unlike other enslaved communities, the communities that were brought to the Sea Islands remained relatively intact. Their language was intact. Some of their culture was intact. They came from common areas, the way that it was common practice to mix up different languages and stuff like that to break up identities. 
that was less likely to happen on the Sea Islands. And the Sea Islands was the first place in the South to be liberated. And it was liberated by Black people themselves. The Union Navy showed up off the coast of the Sea Islands in late 1861, and the white plantation owners who were a small minority of those Sea Islands fled. And Black people took over the plantations. Black people took over the islands, started self-organizing. And because of that, many abolitionists, many Black troops, many reformers all go down to the Sea Islands to set up schools to basically start Reconstruction early on the Sea Islands. And so you get a real radical center of political activity on the Sea Islands with both free Blacks from that area who have emancipated themselves from slavery and Northern Blacks coming down in the Union Army. And so many Ypsilantians would actually marry women from those islands and come back to Ypsilanti. And some of the women they married from those islands were born in Africa, were born in Africa. That's how close Africa is to this story in some ways. And I think we should always remember that, that Africa is part of the story and part of these men's lives in a real way, not just sort of a background, a background. The Sea Islands would be occupied by the Union Army for all the entire Civil War without ever getting off those islands and taking on mainland South Carolina. It was only till the very end of the war that that happened. And there, the 102nd United States Colored Troops, the 54th Massachusetts, and the 55th Massachusetts are all together again. So even though Ypsilanti men may have gone to Massachusetts early, they all unite together again on these sea islands off the coast of South Carolina and fight together in common formations and common battles. So people who got separated in the beginning of the war from Ypsilanti all fight together at the end of the war, which is an unusual story as well. At the very end of the war, they would have participated in helping Sherman's march to the sea. They would have participated in the liberation of Charleston, the seat of the Confederacy. The first troops into Charleston were Black troops, including Ypsilantians singing John Brown's body in the capital of the slaveocracy. It was a kind of biblical moment. It was even remarked upon at the time that it was Jubilee from the Bible. And I'm sure it would have seemed that dramatic when you were there. Right after that, at the very end of the war, in fact, when the war is over, but they haven't got news about it down there, the 102nd, the 54th and 55th of Massachusetts, along with some other black units and some white units, will participate in a deep raid into South Carolina called Potter's Raid. And they will attack plantations, cotton gins, rail lines, and they will participate in the liberation of thousands of people. There are men from Ypsilanti who were enslaved who escaped slavery, who joined the Union Army, who went down south and helped liberate thousands of people. That's the arc of some of these lives, from escaping yourself as an individual to going back down south with thousands of other Black men, this time with guns. This is a dramatic change in America. Black men are no longer fleeing north to get to Canada. They're going south with guns. This is a change. Of course, Black men and Black communities around the United States jumped at the chance to do that. And though Ypsilantians were by and large not involved in some of the fiercest fighting that Black soldiers would have been involved in, which was around Richmond at the end of the war, they certainly participated in combat, especially in the last weeks of the war. In fact, one of the very last men to die in the entire Civil War is a man named Jesse Oliver a Black man from Ypsilanti, just a teenager who was killed in the Battle of Bradford Springs after the war is already over, after Lee has already surrendered to Grant. 
They've not got the news down in the swamps of South Carolina, and Jesse Oliver is killed needlessly in a small skirmish outside of Bradford Springs. And there his body lies still. There his body lies still. What about families back at home? And what role was there for Black women? The role for Black women is actually immense. Because it's largely informal, it wasn't written about or recorded in the way that some of the Black male soldiers' stories were. But Black women played an incredibly important role in all kinds of the support and logistical work for the Union armies, not just for Black troops, but for white troops as well. So you think of those traditional roles that Black women played. They played those for the Union army, cooks, laundresses, nurses, all of those kinds of roles they played. They played them also from their own communities. These are women who are leaving plantations with their families. Maybe their husbands are joining the Union Army. They obviously can't stick around the plantation anymore. You get movements of people all around the South of Black people. You get a kind of internal migration as Union lines come and go and as the Confederacy lines collapse or solidify. Women are leaving the plantations with their families. They're getting to union lines, they're getting to union camps, and they are participating in the war effort on every level, sometimes paid, sometimes not paid, sometimes as sort of housewives for their husbands. You literally went with your husband to the war, stayed in camp with them, and you brought the children sometimes. We don't think about that now. That's not the way we do war now, but that, it was a volunteer army then, and that's the way it did work for many families. Women on their own, outside of families, would have joined these long, long lines following the Union Army or in liberated areas. And so you get an explosion of self-activity during this period by Black women, both on the field and at the home front. Black men are fighting for rights for the end of slavery. It's clear that Black women probably won't get the vote out of the Civil War, right? <laughs> black men think that they probably will get the vote, or are they hopeful of getting the vote out of the Civil War? So why are Black women so insistent on supporting the Civil War? Because they know that if Black men get the right to vote, then they can demand that their husbands and sons and fathers then use that right to demand they get the right to vote. That's the thing. You get your rights, and then you use your rights to demand our rights. You see Black women involved in the struggle, not simply to support men, but because it's both a struggle for the liberation of their race, their people, but also through this struggle is the possibility for something like women's emancipation. What happened in the Civil War was so dramatic, from slavery to freedom. Why not imagine that Black women also might get the right to vote? might get legal rights on the other side of the Civil War. This was a revolution. You were allowed to dream big, and Black women dreamt big, just like Black men. And a lot of white people dreamt big about reconstructing this country on a more democratic basis. Now, that, of course, failed in Reconstruction and Jim Crow. But let's not pretend that people didn't have big dreams that motivate them to take part in this titanic, truly epic struggle that cost the lives of three quarters of a million people. What was the role of Black Union troops from Ypsilanti in Florida? Florida is the first time Black troops from Ypsilanti and the 102nd United States Colored Troops will go into the field for battle. And why that's interesting is the day chosen to go into the field. And to go into the field for battle for the first time also meant new uniforms and a new gun. 
So it was a big day. It was a big day. And the day chosen to do that was August 1st. August 1st is Emancipation Day. And so it was a celebration of the struggle against slavery. Emancipation Day, August 1st, has nothing to do with freedom in the United States. It was about the end of slavery in the British Empire. And Canada became a free place you could go to. And so we're right close to Canada. And many of those Black Ypsilantians didn't come to Ypsilanti. They were on their way to Canada and stayed in Ypsilanti. So Canada was the North Star. And the fact that emancipation had happened in Canada 30 years before the United States meant that it was a symbol. And also Black people were citizens in Canada. You could vote in Canada. Emancipation Day was celebrated before the Civil War by Black Ypsilantians. And they brought that celebration with them to the South. They brought this very specific northern celebration of emancipation that is only celebrated in the Detroit region and down in Jamaica and Trinidad. And they brought that with them to the Sea Island. That's how specific their culture was up here. But it's also how ingrained the struggle against slavery was in this community for generations before the Civil War even began. Emancipation Day would have been celebrated before some of the men who fought in the Civil War were even born in Ypsilanti. The struggle against slavery didn't just start during the Civil War. These Black communities that negotiated that 1863 meeting here in Ypsilanti had meetings in 1843 under very similar, you know, similar discussions. These were long-going discussions, and Black Ypsilantians for generations had participated in those discussions and the struggle against slavery. So they were bringing all of those traditions, all of that knowledge, all of that history with them into their battle for the first time just by saying, we want to go on August 1st. I think it's a really remarkable story about the struggle against slavery and what people were bringing to it. Who was Robert Smalls and what was his connection to the Black Union troops from Ypsilanti? What was the Battle of Honey Hill? Were any Black Union troops from Ypsilanti involved in it? Robert Smalls is a very famous Black man during the Civil War. People may have heard about him. He was enslaved very near where we're talking about, those Sea Islands. As an enslaved person, he worked ships. He actually stole a Confederate ship and liberated his family and other people who were enslaved around them and got that ship to Union lines and then delivered that Confederate ship to the Union Navy as a treasure of war. People were so impressed that Robert Smalls was made captain of the planter. He's the only Black Union captain of a ship during the Civil War. Robert Smalls would have been the Black captain of a ship that would have ferried Black Ypsilanti troops into battle at the Battle of Honey Hill. So he picked up those troops and brought them to battle. Now, every one of those troops already knew the legend of Robert Smalls. By the time they got on that ship, Robert Smalls was a legend already to Black people around the country for his escaping from slavery with the planter. When I looked at the notes for the day, when they get on the planter, the planter is underlined with exclamation points on it because they know how important it is for them that Robert Smalls has taken them into battle. The Battle of Honey Hill is an incredibly important battle for Black soldiers in the Deep South. It was fought by sections of the 102nd by sections of the 54th, 55th, and other Black units, along with some white units in the battle. That battle actually saw the largest number of 102nd United States Colored Troops. That is the Michigan-raised unit of Black Civil War soldiers. There was only one unit raised from Michigan. Honey Hill was the worst bloodletting for Michigan-raised soldiers during the Civil War. 
It was a relatively minor battle in the big scheme of things. But for the people who were there, it was an epically bloody affair. And it was the battle in which Black Ypsilantians bled most in, both in the 102nd, the 54th, and 55th Massachusetts. Robert Smalls would go on to become the congressperson for the Sea Islands during Reconstruction and would, in fact, because of the population of the Sea Islands remained overwhelmingly Black, that Robert Smalls would continue to be elected from the Sea Islands even after Reconstruction was put down. So Robert Smalls is still elected as congressperson from the Sea Islands into the 1890s. So you can imagine that one of the most famous Black men in America in the 1890s would have been Robert Smalls, because he would have been the only face in Congress. All Black people would have known who Robert Smalls was. There were some breakfast tables here in Ypsilanti where some children were taught by their fathers that that man brought me to battle at Honey Hill. Later in life, he would have been important. These stories would have been told to children because people were still alive and still playing important roles in national politics. So Robert Smalls is an amazing figure that you don't think there would be a connection to Ypsilanti with, but there's an immense connection. He brought Ypsilanti men into battle where they died in the struggle against slavery. And he was a leader of the Black community of the Sea Islands. It's a wonderful story. What is the connection between General Sherman and Black Union troops from Ypsilanti? Sherman is a racist. Sherman does not employ generally Black troops in his army. He's one of the few Union armies by the end of the war who will not employ Black troops in combat roles, even though he's fighting through the South. He's the deepest in the South, going through Georgia into South Carolina and then up into North Carolina. What happens is that as he's doing that big turn, remember, our Black Ypsilanti troops are off the coast of South Carolina. So what they do is they invade off of the Sea Islands to help Sherman, to draw Confederate troops away from Sherman so that Sherman will have an easier time as he battles his way up north towards Richmond. And so Black troops, even though they're not fighting on Sherman's march to the sea and through the Carolinas directly, they're helping facilitate it by drawing Confederate troops away from that advance and forcing them to fight Black troops off the coast of South Carolina. So they play a role in Sherman's march to the sea, even though they're not directly involved on the march itself. And I think that's important to say, because we often remove Black people from these stories when they're integral to the story. So the march to the sea, Black people are integral to that story, not just as what was called contraband, as people escaping slavery that are following the army, which they did by their tens of thousands, but as soldiers fighting in that as well. And it's important to know that Ypsilantians played a role in that. And they would have destroyed tons of rail tracks up and down the coast of South Carolina. They would have been involved in that. And they had a good time doing it, I have to say. There's a letter back home, a letter to a magazine called The Colored American. And it says that the planter class of South Carolina will not soon forget when the colored man of Michigan came to his state. They were making a point. They were making a point. Some of the most famous plantations Drayton Hall, which is an incredibly famous plantation to this day because it's been restored, were liberated by the 102nd United States Colored Troops. So if you look up Drayton Hall on the internet, you can see a picture of it and know that Black Ypsilantians liberated that plantation at the end of the war in April 1865. What can you tell me about the Banner of Freedom? The Banner of Freedom is a wonderful story. And what it is, is there are a number of white Ohio regiments that are part of Potter's Raid. And some of those men, one of the units, the 25th Ohio, is from Northern Ohio, like Toledo and Lorraine. And it's made up of members of the Typographical Union. 
So the people who set type in newspapers, the union has organized these men into the army. And so when they go to each town in Potter's Raid, these white soldiers who have become abolitionists in this process take over the local newspaper and reprint it as the banner of freedom, announcing the end of slavery, the recruitment of black troops, the end of the Confederacy and black rights. It's white troops doing it, and they're calling it the banner of freedom. So each town they go into, it'll be the Sumterville banner of freedom, the Grahamville banner of freedom. They take over the printing presses, and they do the banner of freedom. So the Potter's Raid has a newspaper associated with it, announcing the change in circumstances (laughs) to the people of South Carolina. (laughs) So it's a wonderful story, and it shows, my guess is these white soldiers did not begin the Civil War as radical abolitionists. The experience of the Civil War made them radical abolitionists. But these were working class white men from Toledo who were swept up in the freedom call that the Civil War was and joined it. What was life like in Ypsilanti after the war, especially for returning soldiers? And most importantly, what was the impact of Black soldiers in the Union victory? Life for returning soldiers after the war. It depends on when we're talking about. For the first few years after the Civil War, I think things were dramatically different. Well, I know they were dramatically different. Those men who returned a few years after the Civil War would have gained the right to vote, would have been citizens, would have been able to serve on juries, all of that kind of stuff. And so you get real reconstruction here in Ypsilanti, just like you do in the South. It's on a different basis, but you get real reconstruction. Some of the most formidable Black men of the 1870s and 1880s of Ypsilanti, including a man who would become the first Black teacher here in Ypsilanti, Isaac Burdine, the first Black juror, Sanford H. Wells, you know, the first, first, firsts, all of them will be Black Civil War vets. They are bringing their experience and their organizational skills and their connections that they made in the war back home with them. Remember what I said about the percentage of Black men who fought. The war was an incredibly important moment in their lives, even if they were only in it for six months at the end of the war. Laws change. Ideas change. For a moment, there is radical reconstruction in Ypsilanti. These same men, if they lived another 10 or 15 years, would have seen most of those gains made in the Civil War that they fought and died for taken away through Jim Crow, through the end of the Civil Rights Acts, through the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. It's a mixed bag about what was life like in terms of rights for Black people after the Civil War. But I think we can say for certain, not a single Black person in Ypsilanti would have preferred to go back before the Civil War. As bad as things were after the Civil War, they were still better than before the Civil War. They were still better. The changes unleashed in the Civil War were so profound, were so all-encompassing that there was no way of going back. The country just looked totally different. It had different politics, different way of talking, different economy, different transportation. Chattel slavery was over as a system. Now, people were in the South re-enslaved through all kinds of ways. But I think that the gains made in that war were still basing whatever gains we make today on the basis of those gains made on the Civil War. So the 14th Amendment to this day is how the rights of gay people are judged, how the rights of women are judged. That second birth of freedom, or really the first birth of freedom in this country, not the second, but the first, still has a profound impact on us today. 
And when you hear people like Donald Trump or whatever talking about taking the 14th Amendment out of the U.S. Constitution, that is a direct assault, direct assault on the gains made in the Civil War. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution is the most significant democratic advance this country ever made, and it would not have made it without the Civil War. Birthright citizenship was almost unique in the world. You were a citizen just by virtue of being born here, whatever your color, whatever your religion, whatever your nationality. That was almost unique in the world. To this day, there are very few countries that have birthright citizenship in their constitutions. Germany, for example, which is a very democratic country, you could be a Turkish immigrant three generations and never become a citizen of Germany. But here, if you're born here, you're a citizen. It can't be taken from you. It's a right. And that leads to all other kinds of rights. And the 14th Amendment was only capable, we only got it because of the Civil War. And we only got the Civil War's victory because of Black participation. What is the role of Black people in the Civil War? It's to win the Civil War. It's to change the war from a war about union to a war about slavery. And then it is to facilitate that victory. The Black story of the Civil War is the central story of the Civil War. It is inconceivable to me, inconceivable, that the North could have won the Civil War without Black participation. It is not possible. We can thank living in the United States of America for the Black men of Ypsilanti, the Black community of Ypsilanti, and the other Black communities that fought in the Civil War and attempted to create some kind of democracy on this continent for the first time. Their impact was profound. So please do not give the Civil War to the neo-Confederates, radicals, progressives, the Black community. The Civil War is yours. Own it. It's yours. The rights gained in the Civil War were a struggle. Nobody gave them. They were taken. They were taken. We need to hold on to those if we're going to honor the men and women who sacrificed so much in the Civil War. It's a revolution. We talk about it in the Civil War, but if we really thought about it as this is our revolution, as profound as the French Revolution, way more profound than the American Revolution, then we would own it more. Ken Burns does all a disservice by making it a white man's war. That's not what it was. War could be many different wars at one time. And for some folks, it absolutely was a white man's war, but not for the black folks who fought in it. I think the Civil War is one of the most profound moments in all of human history. The expropriation of slavery, of the property of human beings, that's the largest transfer of property in human history. The largest that ever happened in all of human history. And it was not compensated. You know, when we say, oh, we can't take property from rich folks, they took the largest concentration of property in human history from rich folks in this country and didn't give a dime for it. So we can do it. I'm for using the Civil War as an example of expropriation. Absolutely. We should have expropriated their land. That was the big mistake. In fact, we didn't do 40 acres and a mule. We should have done that. So we expropriated their human property, but not their other property, and it allowed them to retain power. The radical Republicans of the time, the great Thaddeus Stevens, the leader of the Republican Party in Congress, they were adamant that Reconstruction would fail if Black people were not given land and if the big plantations weren't broken up. And they were correct. It was the biggest mistake in U.S. history. It's an international war. Major figures were actually German communists. Wouldn't have been one without them either. In fact, the Union Army is only a minority white-born American men. It is a majority foreign-born and Black. It's a majority immigrant and Black army, and that's very important to remember.
Out of the 2.2 million Union soldiers who fought, 1.2 million were Black or immigrant. People from all over the world see this as their struggle, a Republican small r struggle against slavery for democratic rights. Radicals all over the world look to the Union Army and the Civil War as a liberating army. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Matt Siegfried for sharing this absolutely illuminating history of the involvement of Black soldiers from Ypsilanti in the Civil War. If you're interested in learning more about the subject, Matt Siegfried has assembled a bibliography that we've embedded into the webpage for this episode of Ipsy Stories. To access it, simply go to ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories, click on the button for today's episode, and then click on Bibliography. All the materials are available through the Ypsilanti District Library or through MELCAT, the interlibrary loan service of the Library of Michigan. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to local historian James Mann about how the city of Ypsilanti got its name. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.